the pantry party this is season two episode eight um we're your hosts liza and bran i'm bran i don't know why i said liza's name first but here we are um and on today's episode we have a very very special guest a lot of you probably know her from socials or the fact that liza works with her she's like the boss and that is all the time yeah, and her name is Laura Thomas. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, not to get too deep into this stuff, but, like, obviously um, Laura's work and her influence has had a big impact on our careers and our lives. Like, I mean, I'm literally on the other side of the world <laughs> thanks to her. Um, <laughs> But I think yeah. taking a little bit of a step back into the more um, foundational stuff, obviously her podcast is a great resource. Um, it's called Don't Salt My Game, which I'm sure a lot of people already have come across if you're listening to this. Um, but, yeah, so Laura is a registered nutritionist and um, director of my work, London Centre for Intuitive Eating. Um, she is, I mean, I don't really know how else to... What else we need to add? She's she talks through who she is in the in the podcast oh, anyway, um, but she's had a very sort of um, roundabout but extensive career in a bunch of different things in the nutrition industry, and so she's got some great insight into like you know how to shape that and how that's kind of shown up for her. Um, but I think one of the really really nice things that she brings to this is the much bigger, broader picture perspective and the systemic thing of our industry and how we're like you know how we work and stuff um which I think is a really really important conversation for people to hear yeah and we mentioned this at the end and obviously the place you guys work is a London Centre for Intuitive Eating but we talk about the fact that we don't really talk about intuitive eating at all um which is a little bit odd um but yeah, I agree. I think the fact that I think we did just record this and my brain might just be fuzzy, but I think we really <laughs> we illustrated really well how how much bigger health is. That was not a good sentence. Yeah, no. How much bigger health is than just like nutrition and being able to micromanage the little bits that you can do. Um and how that's from the fundamentals of research all the way through to practice um, and, yeah, she's just a, she's a good egg, as people yeah. would say, and I think is very eloquent with the way that she explains things despite almost having a baby right now. Yeah, she's literally, <laughs> like, nine months pregnant right now. Um, yeah. So we're actually going to split this episode up into two because it was quite a long chat and I think, you know, it's good to be able to get as much as we can out of it and include everything that we talked about. Um, So we will be covering, we will be like splitting this episode into two and airing the next part next fortnight. So I'm sorry, but you're going to have to wait for that. Um, Stay tuned. But it'll be worth it. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, was there anything else we wanted to add before? Oh, I think actually just reflecting on what Laura said at the end, um, she did talk about where you can find her, but I don't think she mentioned her book. So if anyone's looking to get into intuitive eating or into like just learn more about it, that's really a really, really good resource, yeah. resource and a good place to start. So um, we'll link everything in the show notes anyway, but I just think maybe to add that um, to what she spoke about at the end, which will actually be at the end of next episode anyway. So if you would like to find Laura, everything is in the show notes. Um, and yeah, should we, should we get on with it? Jump into it? Yeah, jump right in. See you on the other side. Groovy. So we'll start with what was our fast five, but it's now going to be our fast four because the fifth one is, is what's in season. It got its own segment. Come back to that. Yeah. Um, so Laura, what is your, sorry, what are your top three pantry staples? Okay. Um, I'm going to go with, and I'm sure everyone does this as well. Beans. like canned beans, chickpeas, black beans, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, anyone said that. What? No, I agree. Last season, I, I don't think anyone said that. <laughs> um, okay, well, they're all missing a beat. Um, I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Malden. <laughs> of course, <laughs> because like, how can you get by without it, really? And let's see. Hmm. Probably some kind of grain, I would I would think. This is so, um, I can't believe these words are about to leave my mouth, but quinoa, maybe? Unbelievable. So, oh, I know, I'm such a dick. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I mean, I could have gone from, for like frozen veggies, but I, like, or for, like frozen fruit. That would be my next. If I had five, that, that's what else would be on there. <laughs> But I, re- I, re- I feel like you can throw together a pretty decent meal if you've got salt, beans, and quinoa, and yeah. then some fr- fresh produce. Yeah, for sure. Um, important follow-up question, what kind of beans? Black. Black beans. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah good yeah. choice. Mm-hmm. Um, the second of our questions um, is what's your go-to self-care strategy? Oh God, I feel like this is so up in the air at the moment for so many reasons in that um, one, I'm very pregnant (laughs) and two, um, we're in lockdown currently. Uh, So uh, Eliza knows that before all of this happened, I was going for a swim in the outdoor Lido close to my house. So Lido for... I mean, I didn't know what that was until I moved to London. So I get excited for people to know. It's an outdoor swimming pool, basically. Um, and so there's a really cool one near near my house. Uh, so I can't do that at the moment. Um, but I don't know. I'm like, it's so weird. I'm in, I'm just like in limbo at the moment. I'm not even mm-hmm. practicing self-care. Self-care at the moment is survival until this baby is born, basically. <laughs> um, so I'm doing like, oh, this is against, I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth, but I'm doing these like this, like, like hypnobirthing. It's like a form of kind of meditation specifically around relaxation for birth. 
so listening to it's basically like listening to calm but for having a baby <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. go with that. is this the most long-winded answer you've ever had no no no, no. it's great <laughs> um, so yeah I'll go with that very nice <laughs> uh, number three is what dish would you bring to a party oh, oh. <laughs> okay so at the moment, again, Eliza's going to laugh at me because... I already know what you're going to say. You read me like a book. <laughs> um, so I have been making a lot of BA's um, No Need Focaccia bread. It's so Very easy. nice. It's so delicious. And it's like, it's impressive when, when you have, like, make it all. Um, so yeah, I would probably go with that or chocolate chip cookies if I was doing dessert. Yeah. Have nice. you tried the BA's best chocolate chip cookies? Because they're my current go-to. Like, have them in the freezer at all points, sort of thing. No. So, I mean, I obviously know all about them because Chris <laughs> Morocco is my life. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I am vegan, so I haven't actually made them. Oh, but I you have. Are too. Yeah, I am, and I know it's whatever. I'm sure they'll come out <laughs> with a vegan version eventually. Like, there's got to yeah. be a demand for it. Yeah, but um, I. But I have, I have this recipe that I've, I've made for like probably somewhere close to 10 years. Um, and they're like, they're always such a crowd pleaser. They have like that, the right amount of like salty and sweet. And yeah, Which I is- have, I have been inspired by BA's best and I've like tr- tried making them with like the big um, chunks of chocolate rather than chocolate chips. So this is a mashup. Very nice. Yes. Yeah, it. and I think that's that's the best part of the BA's best is like the salty sweet combination. So if you've got that down pat, then yeah, we're all good. Yeah, good Bye. to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the last question before we get into things is, what's the fa- your your favorite party or event that you've hosted? Mm, um, I my favorite one. I'm trying to think a lot of parties in my time <laughs> I mean probably I mean again it's a it's a big cliche but my wedding it was a lot of fun to I mean to be fair I was also writing my book while we were planning the wedding and um Ow. Very, <laughs> like intense um but yeah like um yeah planning the food like going and trying all the food for the wedding and like coming up with cocktail ideas and just like I did I wouldn't say I had a theme well okay so our theme was loosely Drake but that's like a side story (laughs) (laughs) and Izzy amazing made um she made a riff on milk bars birthday cake cakes for my wedding and they were the most incredibly delicious thing that I've ever eaten so you know, you know if Izzy Hossick has made a cake for yeah. you, it's going to be a good, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, everything else could go to shit, but that, that would still <laughs> hold everything together. Yeah, exactly. So what uh, is a milk bar's chocolate cake? Oh, so milk bar is actually um, Christina Tosi from, well, from milk bar. So, you know, Momof- Momofuku, is that how you present it? So Dave Chang of Ugly Delicious owns the um, the brand Momofuku, 
which is yeah. like a noodle bar, or it started as a noodle bar. I think they have all different permutations. Eliza will know better than me. On I don't. <laughs> really? No, yeah. I mean, like, I'm not, like, out there, like, oh, I wonder what all of his company is doing. But, yeah, no, I, yeah, it's like a I mean, part. you're a very big fangirl, so I'm surprised I do you love don't, him. You don't I love know him a lot. <laughs> but, um, so they have, like, uh, dessert, like, I don't know, subsidiary of the business <laughs> called Milk Bar. And for anyone who's seen, or for anyone who hasn't seen Chef's Table, the episode with Christina Tosi on desserts, you need to go watch it. She basically does these really delicious, like kind of out of the box, but out of the box cakes, but they always have this like really nostalgic feeling to them. So she, she created um, cereal milk where basically you like soak cereal in milk and then you strain out the cereal so the milk is flavored with the cereal and then you can use that as a soak for cakes and like she's just she's a genius that's amazing <laughs> um, and they have I think actually it's on BA they have a recipe for her birthday cake which for anyone not in the US like birthday cake just sounds like a generic cake but in the States, birthday cake is like a very specific flavor and it uses um, like fake vanilla flavoring, which also has like a very distinct, delicious flavor. So Izzy sourced this like um, fake vanilla from the States <laughs> and like the very, like very particular kinds of sprinkles as well because it's baked into the cake. And then, um, oh God, it was like, it was, it, there was all this drama around these cakes because um, they're like, they're sponge cakes that are iced together, but it was like 30 degrees in London that summer. And so the cakes were like sliding all over the place mm. and she had to drop <laughs> them in my like really hot kitchen. Um, you didn't put a skewer in? Well, I, I mean... I can't, I can't even remember. This is like two years ago. <laughs> I'm sure she did something, but I just remember because she was using like vegan shortening because she vegan, veganized everything and it just wouldn't, like everything was melting. I mean, they turned out great in the end. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was a drama. Anyway, <laughs> that's the cake story. I'll send you a link. Love it. Love it. Like, yeah, you, if you can make the real deal, then make the real deal. All right. So, good. so um, now that we've got a little bit of a peek into your pantry and <laughs> to your like cooking and relationship with food stuff, um, I was wondering before we jump into the like main course of this episode, mm-hmm. um, if you would mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about what you do. Um, yeah. Okay, so my name is Laura Thomas. I am a registered nutritionist and a director at the London Centre for Intuitive Eating, which is how I know Eliza because she works there. Um, and yeah, what do I do? Um, like lots of different things. So my 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 primary responsibility, I suppose, from a clinical perspective, is seeing clients one-on-one 
helping them foster a healthier relationship with food, whether they're coming from a background of chronic dieting and disordered eating or a clinical eating disorder. Um, and so typically I do that a couple of days a week. Um, I also wrote a book called Just Eat It, How Intuitive Eating Can Help You Get Your Shit Together Around Food. And I have a podcast called Don't Stop My Game. Um, but then <laughs> I don't know, I've got like all the day-to-day -day, like running of the business type stuff and supervision with my team and training and um, a lot of advocacy stuff, which I'm sure we will get on to. So like no two days are the same really <laughs> around, uh, around where we are. So yeah. What else? Is there anything else I've missed? Um... I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll pick up other things as we go through, but as you mentioned, you're currently growing a human, um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is a pretty big deal as yeah. well. Um, and something that we're particularly interested in here is how, like, the intersection between our work lives and our, our actual lives and how mm -hmm. we kind of, like, balance that. And, um, you know... I feel like, I mean, if people haven't already got the gist, you are a very busy person and like <laughs> are somewhat, um, not necessarily of your own fault, but unable to do one thing at once. And so yeah. I think that's a really, accurate. <laughs> I think that's a really valuable, um, because we've had this conversation before that that's actually, you know, how some people like to work and it actually helps in terms of, you know, managing everything and feeling yeah. like you've like, got your shit together without being just like stuck doing one thing so we can explore a little bit more of that um as we go through um but yeah would, would we add anything to that I mean I know I know what you're saying like I I always have lots of plates spinning and I kind of um sometimes struggle with that from the perspective of like okay I just need to kind of focus and, and do one thing um but at the same time I'm just not that kind of person like it like it just it wouldn't happen like I'm on maternity leave but I'm already planning like what I'm gonna do yeah. when I <laughs> when I get back like oh I'm gonna put together this training and this training and um yeah so it's just yeah it's not in my nature and I also think I would get really bored mm -hmm. if I was only doing yeah one thing like I love seeing clients I really love my client work but if I had to do that five days a week like it, it wouldn't work for me. I need to have other things going on. Yeah. And have you always been like that? Or is that something that's just sort of happened as you've gotten a bit older? Um, I think I've always had like a, like I've always really pushed myself and been really driven and been really like, I want to um, do a lot and and I think it's not from a sort of like like the perspective of like um oh my god I need to be so accomplished and you know like successful and blah 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 but more from the perspective of being like just really curious and interested about different aspects of <clears throat> excuse me nutrition dietetics and um just like I have so many interests within this space that um I kind of 
Yeah, I'm like one of my um, colleagues once told me I was like a magpie because I'm just like attracted to shiny <laughs> things. And I want to like look at all of the things and, and like collect them all. Um, so that's kind of, I feel like, yeah, that's just part of my nature. Um, and I don't like, I don't, for me, there's no point in me trying to resist that because like I said, I would get like bored or, um, like, yeah, I think I would lose motivation and passion for the work if I couldn't kind of, you know, within reason, go, go with the things that um, I was interested in. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and that totally resonates. I mean, like, we're literally here talking on this podcast that is <laughs> like <laughs> outside of the all podcast, of our right? yeah. <laughs> Brand has like six jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess... Um, to kind of like take us all the way back to sort of where you got started and the beginning of your journey into this space. Mm -hmm. um, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, like what made you go into nutrition and then what your kind of um, education pathway looks like in terms of how you kind of got here. Yeah. Um, so I actually started my, my, huh. My undergraduate degree started off as biotechnology. I don't know what I was thinking. That's what uh, Harrison started with. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, and like when you're doing a biology degree, like it's all the same in the beginning anyway. It's like cell biology and genetics and blah, blah, blah. So it was a, a kind of, um, I remember I had a lecture within that on nutrition and it like, <sighs> It was, I mean, it was, in hindsight, it was really problematic because it was talking about, I remember the lecturer saying, and this is, just, I'll caveat this by saying this is not true, so don't freak out about it, anyone who's <laughs> listening, but he was like, oh, you can, you know, if you eat, like, the equivalent of one Oreo extra a day, you will become obese by this point, <sighs> and I'm like, obviously, that was like, oh, that's interesting in my, like, very... Um, underdeveloped brain at the time um, and and so I kind of searched around and transferred into the human nutrition course um, at my university and then uh, so yeah just that was a that course was actually really interesting because it wasn't just like applied nutrition or like um like from a like a biomedical perspective there was also a lot of sociology and psychology in that undergraduate so I got kind of a, a taste of lots of different things which I actually think has really served me well mm -hmm. going forward and then I moved to this well at the end of my undergraduate degree I did some research on the gastrointestinal microbiome as part of my honors research. And then that kind of bridged to doing um, what was originally gonna be a master's but ended up being a PhD in gut health. Um, so I was studying, so the way that I, I did that in the States, so the way that it works is that you do research on top of coursework. So I was doing all of my nutrition and dietetic coursework and then doing PhD research on top of that. So, um, oh, what's that? It's heavy. That is such a heavy load of work. 
Yeah, it's so it's so funny when my when my friends in the UK like bitch about their PhDs. I was like, really? <laughs> it, you just did your research for three years. I was also teaching, yeah. <laughs> yeah. taking coursework at the same time. I was like, let's we're not we're not going to get into this. Um, <laughs> so. So yeah, I, I started off doing some research around the gastrointestinal microbiome, but then um, my PhD supervisor was, uh, I don't even know like a nice way to put this, but he was kind of a lunatic. And so um, he, yeah, he ended up not getting tenure, um, which means he basically got fired because he was a terrible person, so he deserved it. Um, but it meant that I had to switch my research project kind of like in my last year and basically just had to, yeah, <laughs> had to like do something completely from scratch. So um, I had been kind of in, in contact with a sociology professor who worked within the, because it was like an intercollegiate department, um, so I, I've been, I've been kind of like talking to him for some events and stuff. Cause obviously I was like running the nutrition graduate student association at the same time as doing all of this. And so, um, he'd been doing some talks and I was really interested in, in what he was doing, um, more from a, uh, sort of psychosocial determinants of, um, behavior change perspective. So I ended up going and, and doing some research around that and dietary assessment. So instead of being kind of lab based, I was more like looking at humans, which is what I ultimately wanted to do anyway. So um, did a lot of like survey development and dietary assessment around that. And then after my PhD, I did a nutrition policy internship at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. In Washington DC so that was a couple of months decided nutrition policy definitely was not the one <laughs> and um, and then I did a postdoc at Cornell um, again that was more in like community nutrition and that was kind of um, I mean I was doing lots of different things there as well uh, partly process evaluation but also actually getting out into communities, talking to people, understanding. I mean, I think that's when I had the sort of epiphany moment, which I, I knew, but because of everything I'd been taught in my training, I kind of went along with it, but had this real sort of like moment of like, people know what to eat. That's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is not the lack of education. The problem is much more systemic than that. So, um, and that was, I, I think, through having contact with with lots of different communities um, in different, like, urban and rural settings. So, um, yeah, then I came back to the UK and I decided, um, well, I, I always knew that I didn't want to be in research forever, but that's when I kind of, it was around the time that Intuitive Eating Haze was kind of coming into my periphery and um, so decided to do a lot of upskilling around those concepts and training get some supervision all of that kind of stuff and start actually working with people in a one-on-one -on -one capacity um, with their their relationship with food so that's when I started my private practice essentially and then it's kind of grown into a whole 
clinic at this point. So yeah, does that cover, I think that covers everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think Gosh. it's really interesting, you know, I feel like there's this real pressure on new grads to kind of like, you know, you, you get spit out of your course and you know what you want to do and you know where you want to work. Um, and something that we've sort of explored over the, the previous season is that those opportunities don't always present themselves and they're not, you can't just like walk out of uni into your dream job. Um, and when you're a graduate, oftentimes like you don't actually know what that dream job looks like because you don't have the experience working in these different areas. Like you've sort of had this um, journey where you've kind of like bumped from different, like, like diff to different sort of corners of the nutrition world. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's something that we really need to normalize in that we don't have like a clear straight path when it comes to our careers. It's often a little bit more like, you know, you need to explore and find out what you actually want to do. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's very reassuring. I'm sure a lot of people will find to hear that, like, you know, you kind of end up going with the flow and seeing where it takes you. Um, do you feel, this might be a bit of a weird question, but do you feel like you had throughout your educational sort of like career and your research stuff, do you feel like you had the power to like drive that or you kind of sucked along with everything that was going on around you? No, and, and I think another kind of like um, sort of probably what is slightly different about my circumstances is that I was a, I was a foreign student um, when I was in the States. And um, so for seven years during my PhD and my postdoc, um, I was kind of um, constrained by like visas and all of that kind of thing, which... Um, meant that there there were some things I kind of had wanted to do that I wasn't able to do and um yeah so from that perspective there were a lot of restraints on what I was doing um I think even even in my undergrad like I remember going and talking to my advisors about stuff and and them just like kind of pushing their agenda on me which is not super helpful and not listening to me and I think there are some points looking back where I would have been like, if, I, if I'd known better and I had enough sort of wherewithal at that point and wasn't just, you know, spending my early 20s absolutely inebriated, then I might have like <laughs> pushed, pushed back um, a little bit more and, and gone a slightly different direction, but um, it's worked out. So <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all good. Yeah, I'm so intrigued that you started with the gut microbiome stuff, which, yeah, depending, I don't know what year that was, but there was such a big, I, I remember being at uni and there was such a huge push for that. It, it like, was really at the, I mean, I, that was like 2008, 2009, like, like yeah. fairly early on when it was, it was like becoming a thing and we really didn't know. I mean, we still don't know that much, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, oh God, it's like a long time ago now. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Amazing. Gosh, so much. I feel like you've been so much in like such a short amount of time, which is incredible to think about. Like, I think it's more a reflection of having like a short attention span. I'm like, oh, <laughs> very reassuring. <laughs> Did you, so you mentioned that, you know, you've done like you've done your postdoc, so you kind of, dabbled in that 
research world were you did you have like your heart set on research like were you was that just something that again sort of popped up and you were taken with it yeah I think it's again I think because my nature is I mean depending on how gracious you want to be I'm either like really curious or really nosy but either way like (laughs) um like I like having answers to things as much as I can and I like the research process and like finding solutions to things and um, sort of that problem solving aspect of research um so I think in a lot of ways I was just quite well suited to it um which made it kind of I wouldn't say I research is never easy um but I but I like I was good at it, I suppose. And, um, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean that I loved it. Um, yeah. Like, and, and you'll know being in academia, there's a real um, pressure around publisher parish. And I didn't like that. And um, like that, that didn't, sit well for me plus I really really missed the human interaction yeah. and and the, the kind of working with people perspective um so that's ultimately what like and I <laughs> I mean I still dabble in research um I'm part of a research project taking part in the NHS at the moment um so I think it's like once a researcher always a researcher but the way that you but the, the, the way that that plays out for you might look slightly different and I think it, again for people who are thinking oh do I do research do I do clinical practice like you don't have to decide it's not a one or the other mm. thing you know you can you can insert yourself into uh, research projects um if, if you want to and there's funding and all of that kind of stuff available um, and, and, you know, you can make it work with, with doing a bit, a bit of both. So, um, yeah, I think that's maybe helpful to remember that it doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. yeah. And even like the more that I'm in at the moment, the more I'm finding that both sides complement each other, like having a really thorough and critical view of the literature and especially in the non-diet health at every size yeah. space and being able to translate that into the clinical environment, but then also the other way and having those people skills and being able to build relationships and rapport with people in mm-hmm. the research world is honestly a skill that's quite highly valued. I don't know if you've noticed that as well, because not in a mean way, but a lot of people who are end up in academia or research are very science-based, literature-based, not so much that human interaction side. Yeah, no, 100%. And um, I think, the the people who make um good researchers have clinical experience because they can kind of they can see beyond their like cell model or their animal model or or whatever it is and they can think about how is this actually going to apply in people's lives um and that i think is is often really lacking and missing from a lot of the literature is kind of well mm. what how is this relevant to people how would this particularly in nutrition research where you know we're hell-bent on you know finding out the 
the key behind the keto diet or whatever and we're missing <laughs> what that actually means for humans um, yes. so you know for, for example something we've been talking a lot about recently is this narrative I say we I mean Eliza and I and our team <laughs> at LCA, um, is, is the kind of the narrative around um, low-carb diets and how um, th there's this the framing of the narrative is like the paradigm is shifting we can reverse type 2 diabetes we can put it into remission um, and okay, yeah, there's maybe, uh, for some people that, that might work following a very, very strict low carb diet, but we also, we're not thinking about the fact that if we're framing it in that particular way, um, and, and kind of putting together a, this very rigid protocol that there are going to be mm. probably far more people who can't follow that for a variety of different reasons. And so then we're introducing this subtext, it's not even a subtext, it's quite blatant in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways, of blame and shame and stigma when people can't put their type 2 diabetes into remission. And so it's that kind of more holistic picture. Yes, the science is great, but if it's not actually going to apply in, in, or be relevant in people's lives, then that's a, that's a huge waste of research money first and foremost, um, but also has potentially like all of this collateral damage that I think if you are working with humans, you can sort of see a bit further ahead and, and see the, the potential consequences of that or the downsides of that. Um, but when you're not, then, then that's, you stay in that kind of like little research silo. So, yeah. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my soapbox <laughs> over. I'll down now. Not at all. And I think, like, you know, something that because what what we're seeing in like in clinic is people coming through with these issues and asking these questions based on, you know, a study that they've seen reported on mm. or like something that's happened in the news, and they, you know, they get so hell bent on this idea, particularly around like carbs and sugar at the moment, that like you know, we can sort of like hack our nutrition and, and all of that. But I think that's so, um, like what they're doing is taking research that's done at not necessarily a population level, but at a like, you know, cause and effect. It's not taking into the broader circumstance, mm. but it's like a general, a very generalized statement. And they're going so deep into that like extrapolated information to try and get some personal benefit out of it but then at the same time for most people it's not actually going to be attainable or accessible and then we get the issue exactly. of like individual responsibility for their health which is just ridiculous um but I think perhaps while we're sort of on this topic I was wondering Laura if you could tell us a little bit about how you kind of came into this like health at every size and intuitive eating space um and oh. all of the sort of like some of those like light bulb moments because I think we all have certain points where it like clicks for us and we're like oh shit <laughs> well like like I said I think um I mean first of all like just going back even I've always had this kind of like non-conformist streak to me like um you know <laughs> even in like really subtle ways of like 
being 10 years old and being like, I'm a vegetarian now. And like, that's my, yeah, <laughs> that's me rebelling. Um, so I've always had that, I think, um, like real critical, um, like I don't, I, like I, I, do, I just don't really always take or never take things at face value. Like I always read into them and I always am looking a bit further into things. And um, then let me see, like I said, in my, both in my undergraduate and then in my PhD, I really was exposed to ideas around the social determinants of health, sociology more broadly. Um, interwoven into that was aspects of like medical sociology, um, also like how we talk about bodies from a societal perspective. And um, so I had that kind of like conditioning, I suppose, or that priming. And mm -hmm. then, and then weight, weight management as a concept just never sat well with me. Um, it was never something I was interested in. Oh, I totally forgot to mention in terms of my education. Yeah, I was going to say, you missed uh, <laughs> I did this other thing. Um, I also have a, a diploma in eating disorders and clinical nutrition, which is something that I did about a year ago now. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, so that's just, yeah, another little aspect of my training. Um, anyway, so kind of back to your question. Um, I... So then, so I, so that's, that's never sat well with me, but I could never really articulate what my issues were with it. I just need, like, I had that kind of gut instinct of like, mm, this doesn't feel quite right. So then, um, I think I can't remember exactly how I came across this. I, I can't remember if I came across, first of all, Kelsey Miller's anti-diet project blog, like way back in the day. Or if I came across the um, Tales from the Phantosphere, that mm -hmm. ebook, um, one one or both of those kind of came into my awareness around similar times, and I, the, you know, it talks a lot about um, so Tales from the Phantosphere talks a lot about, um, yeah, about about weight stigma and all the different permutations and ways that it can show up in, in terms of like medicalized weight stigma. Um, but it also introduced me to the concept of health at every size. And I didn't really necessarily do anything with that immediately. But then, like I said before, around the time that I was um, sort of starting my own practice, I... I got more and more interested in those concepts and started listening to like Christie's podcast and um, yeah, all of, all of those, all of the different things that were out there and just kind of saturated myself with it. Um, and then went on to do like intuitive eating capsule training and um, yeah, various other training with, I mean, everyone and anyone who's anyone in the uh the non-diet space i've mm. probably done some, some sort of training with. <laughs> yeah and i think um one of the sort of key points that i would want to communicate to students and new grads and stuff is that like you said when you first come across these ideas you can't just like jump in and you don't you're not going to get it straight away you're going to have to spend some time processing and thinking about 
you know, how this applies in your life and what you, how you relate to the industry and, and all of that. Um, because I, th I think it was on um, Christy's podcast recently. She spoke to, oh my God, I can never remember her name. The one who does the amazing like illustrations. Um, that, that, no, the person that we got to contribute some stuff for. No, 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 no. no. Okay. Um, I mean, I can I can link the episode in the show notes, but um, they were talking about being like a like you know that sort of like fence sitting and um, oh yeah, splinter arsing. Yeah, splinter arsing. Yeah. Um, and that sort of like it takes a while for you to like once you're kind of on the fence, look at both sides and be like, okay, well, which way do I want to like fall to like mm -hmm. actually commit to this stuff? Um, and I think you know when we've all been educated within the weight centric paradigm it's like it can take a lot of unlearning to really challenge those things um mm. so I'm interested what like how that sort of came about for you and what your perhaps your like more personal relationship with this stuff was before you kind of had that moment of like oh like realization of the of this space uh yeah I mean <laughs> it's like <clears throat> kind of embarrassing at how textbook that is like just having a, a pretty messed up relationship with food myself growing up um you know not not to the point that I had a clinical eating disorder but definitely you know on and off bad diets and and trying to lose weight and that really stemmed from messages um or, or, or receiving messages that my body was not okay that I was I, I was I was a fat child um and so there was always that subtext of like that's not acceptable that needs to be changed that needs to be controlled that needs to be managed somehow um and and so I think then when I did come across these concepts I wouldn't I would you know I agree with you I did have to sit with it but I think maybe less so than than some other people because it just resonated yeah, so much. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, and I was just like, <laughs> this, is, this is the right thing, right? Like there's just, there's no going back from this, I think. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, that probably is, if I'm being completely honest, what attracted me to nutrition in the first place because you're like, okay, cool, I'll get all the answers and then I'll know what to do, which is like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've yeah we've definitely talked about that before in the podcast about the people that the course attracts are often people who yeah. either can provide all of the answers or have those answers and apply them to themselves yes yeah yeah um I mean the, the, the I mean there are loads of studies that kind of reinforce this that um, the levels of disordered eating and eating disorders amongst nutrition dietetics, not just nutrition dietetics, medicine and um, other health, yeah. like, um, like not physiotherapy, but what's that one that's like kind of like physiotherapy, kinesiology or. Yeah. And like, um, exercise and, phys. Yeah. 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 That, that there, there is a real high prevalence of disordered eating and a lot of eating disorders amongst those those cohorts as well and it's really problematic that they're not I mean I know some universities do screen for them but um you know even even on my eating disorders course there were people with active eating disorders so 
you know, which, um, th th not that they should be excluded from that, but they should be supported for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely an issue within the, the field. Yeah. And I think, um, one of the things that I sort of, as I was coming into this space, I'd never really like put two and two together the, the like diet culture and eating disorder thing. Like I, for some reason it just didn't like, I wasn't like, Oh yeah, shit. Like that's the implication of this. Yeah. But I think, um, like one of the things that I've definitely experienced is it takes a while to like unravel all what, like everything that's going on and really see the broader picture and, you know, the like patriarchal and racist roots of diet culture and like all of the, the other stuff that plays into it. And I think once you can see that and once you can like, like just understand a little bit about what's going into it and what the implications are, it's like, well, it just makes a lot of sense and it's really yeah. compelling to want to work in this space. Yeah, and um, I think Liza. Yeah, no, go on. Sorry, you go, Laura. I was just gonna. I was kind of gonna segue there into into talking about critical dietetics because yeah. I think that that's been really, yeah. So I'll just I'll go. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like one of the things that has really been, and this is actually something that I've only come across in the past couple of years, but um, something that's been really foundational for my learning and and kind of you know, developing those ideas even further is um, the, well, I guess the framework and the practice um, and, and the sort of writings around critical nutrition and dietetic um, practice. I can't remember that. I'm struggling to remember the name of the book now. Um, sure but it's I, called Critical Dietetics, isn't it? No, there's a bigger title than that. Um, and either way, before we um, get into this conversation, would you be able to explain for anyone who hasn't heard of critical dietetics in that space a little bit about what it is? Because I know it's something that, you know, until you sort of had the the lowdown on it, like I don't think I'd heard about it until Helen was giving us that lecture. And I was like, oh, shit, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, basically... It, <laughs> Basically, Critical Dietetics started out as a meeting of nutritionist dietitians in Canada. That's where they had their original kind of conference. And I forget what it, it's going to annoy me, what, what it was actually called. The that title first, of the book? No, the first meeting that they had, because it, was, it started off as a conference, basically, where people all got together because, for want of a better word, they were disgruntled. Like, they were unhappy um dissatisfied with the way that nutrition and dietetics was moving and so and again a, lo a lot of these people were maybe had more of a um a, a background or or a grounding in social uh, or critical social theory so coming kind of pulling from sociology and and were kind of more like had more understanding of the, the wider socio-political picture and how that shapes not just nutrition practice, but nutrition science as well. And so basically they got together in a room. They were like, right. Basically they were like, we need to fuck shit up. And they, um, they, they put, they started putting together a journal. And then one of the objectives was, 
of this of this meeting was to to write a book. So they published a book. It was a few years ago now, um, called Critical Nutrition and Di Critical Dietetics and Nutrition Studies or something like that. <laughs> and, and I can link it. <laughs> yeah, and there's actually I would recommend it to, you know, all like all nutrition and dietetics students. Like it's essential reading. Like forget about manual dietetic practice to practice. Like <laughs> 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 you need to read this book. This book is is now your Bible. Um, and so basically what they, what they did was they came up with a framework for critical dietetics and there are three kind of core components to the, the critical dietetic framework. Um, and this is kind of the, the foundation for them building, um, nutrition research and practice off the back of. I'm not doing this justice, by the way. Definitely read the book, and, and you'll get more. <laughs> no, of the I think I think you've given it a good um, a good summary. Like, it's it's something that um, I think we're taught aspects of it when we're studying, and when you're in that research space, like you're kind of you know you're taught to question assumptions and what you're being told, but at the same time, we're not really necessarily given the tools to do that or the the scope in which mm -hmm. to do that. It's kind of like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I d maybe you had like more forgiving lecturers than I did, but <laughs> I was not encouraged. I mean, I did it because I'm me, but I was not encouraged to challenge or question or push back. Um, I did that when I did my diploma <laughs> and um, it was met with a lot of, um, of angry white dudes flapping their dicks in my face, proverbially. <laughs> Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, academics do not like to be called on their, on their stuff. Um, anyway, there are, so there are three kind of core components of the critical dietetic, um, framework. So the first one is anti-oppression. So that's, um, recognizing as, as healthcare professionals that just by virtue of the fact that we are we are healthcare professionals, um, regardless of any other intersection that we might be at, we have inherently um, a, a high level of privilege, educational privilege, professional privilege. Um, and so it's, it's understanding and unpacking what that means in terms of power dynamics with our clients. Um, and, and, and I guess beyond the clinic, the clinic setting as well, you know, the whole sort of um, expert trope, the, the media expert or whatever else it might be, which we can, we can talk about. Um, and, and then kind of trying and, and, you know, I'll be first to admit I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect in this. It's, it's a constant process of evolve, evolving, um, but trying to reduce harm um, wherever we can and, and really understanding different uh, power systems like healthism, medicalization, but also racism and some of these other socio-political systems of oppression. So that's, so that's, that's anti-oppression. The, the thing that's then related to anti-oppression is uh, critical praxis. So I appreciate these are like super academic terms, but when you read the book, it does make a lot more sense. You just might have to go through it kind of closely. <laughs> but, Praxis is essentially, um, my understanding of it at least, is 
it's living in line with your values. So it's one thing if you hold social justice values, but it's another thing to actually be acting them out. So you could say, you know, um, I love animals and therefore my praxis is to be vegan and buy non-leather shoes, right? That's not everybody's value system, so that I'm not putting that on anyone. I'm just using that as an example to, to sort of illustrate how you would be um, living in line with, with your values. In a, from a nutrition perspective, um, I think, you know, the, the most obvious example I can give in terms of the work that we do is around uh, advocacy both in a public space. Um, so whether that's like, you know, being a social media armchair advocate um, or, you know, more privately um, for, for in terms of our clients. So a lot of the work that we're doing is trying to get appropriate diagnoses, trying to get um, compassionate, person-centered, appropriate, non-stigmatizing care for our clients. That's like a lot of my life. Um, uh, so for, for me, what that looks like oftentimes is kind of like some of the, the more public advocacy I've done around um, like that heinous cancer research campaign that came out last year. We actually, yes, we did this big kind of splashy, um, you know, open letter and, and had other uh, academics and, and activists part of that but we actually went in and spoke with Cancer Research UK and held meetings with them and, and kind of really challenged them um, to, to, to change some of their policies and practices. Um, I also recently <laughs> kind of went into the, the lion's den again with my colleague Helen West who Eliza mentioned earlier and we, we went to the British Dietetic Association's um, obesity bariatric um, bariatrics meeting and gave four workshops on weight inclusive care. So that was, you know, um, really trying to, to, I suppose the, the, the value there is, is around collaboration and trying to, to, to move other people along and help other people understand and, um, not, promote this them versus us kind of mentality that often goes on between diet and non-diet spaces. Um, but to try and really, yeah, like I said, bring people along, try and reduce harm, try and try and support our colleagues in, in making meaningful changes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a kind of crit critical um, praxis piece. And then the reflexivity piece, I think this is maybe kind of speaking more to what you mentioned, Eliza, in terms of the critical um, interpretation and understanding of, of the science. So reflexivity is different from the sort of, or it's deeper than the just the reflexive practice piece that we're often taught, that kind of like Gibson's, is it Gibson or Gibbons or whoever that guy is. Reflection cycle. <laughs> yeah, that whole white dude. Ingrained in the brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, so so it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's kind of a, a personal examination of um, what I know and how I know it. So in, in, in most of our training, we're taught that 
um, the scientific method is the be all and end all in terms of, of knowledge production. Um, but as you know, as soon as you uh, actually start working with people is that, you know, you learn so much from listening to the lived experiences of, of, a, of a human. And so reflexivity speaks to maybe this idea that, that science is often used to silence people and it's often weaponized against them. And so how can we kind of, um, it's not, we're not saying that science isn't valuable, of course it is, but the way we need to be very critical of the way that we use it. We need to be critical of the fact that science is produced under um, or is created within the framework of um, weight stigma and racism and all of these other social injustices. So it's limited by that framework. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the even you know, as much as we can do to reduce bias um, in research, there's still a level of like systemic societal yeah. bias that we can't challenge because it's just the norm. Yeah. 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 So, so that's basically, I mean, that's a whirlwind tour of um, critical dietetic framework. Yeah. Yeah, and that inclusivity piece, I think, like at the moment I'm doing a lot of, doing on the amount of reading on people who who are actually engaged, the demographics of the people who are willingly engaging versus, and the fact that a lot of the science is based on the people who, who willingly engage with the scientific research yes, project. Yeah, yeah. The amount of people that don't purely because of systematic oppression or it's just easier to not have them included whether that be English being a second language cultural diversity that's an entire piece of the puzzle that's missing that we're we're basing and I'm sure we'll talk about this more but whether we're basing a lot of the research on especially in western world Caucasian population mm -hmm. generally well educated mm -hmm. um all of those motivated yeah, exactly. And yeah. I want to be a part of it. And like you say, it's just like an artificial environment, essentially. So it's like, how is this science meaning going to be meaningfully translated when it doesn't reflect anything of proper value? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's, it's good that you're, uh, it sounds like your research group are at least thinking about these wider issues. Um, but I know there are a lot of scientists <laughs> that aren't aren't you even are. thinking of, about them. So yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Yes. Yeah. And that's something that you're not taught at UD in nutrition and dietetics, pulling it back to all of that that stuff. Like when we I think Lies did mention that we did do some like critical appraisal kind of assignments and work and things, but when we did them, it wasn't to this level of understanding. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the assignment reflected how it could actually be applied in the real world. Um, yeah, it's easy, it's easy to pick apart a study and say, oh, you know, they didn't have a, a, an appropriate control group or they, you know, wasn't sufficiently powered or whatever it is, like, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, you're right, we're not taught about the wider context and how that influences science like we love to believe that science is independent science is not 
independent <laughs> of all yeah. of these other wider socio-political structures that you know as soon as you start looking at the the, the literature around um weight science it becomes abundantly clear that they're the researchers are coming in with an agenda they're coming in with a set of biases a set of assumptions and um that then kind of gets propagated down the line and down the line until we have these you know horrific um public health campaigns and um and 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 weight bias policies um so yeah we we definitely need to do better about looking at that wider socio-political socio-economic picture Hey guys, just Bran here with a little outro to let you know that part two of our episode with Laura Thomas will be up in a fortnight. We were very lucky to have so much time with her um, and really have a really great chat about how she translates a lot of these things into her practice. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for another episode in a fortnight, I believe. Apologies if the audio quality is a bit off as well. Um, we recorded via Zoom and everyone knows that Zoom audio is not always always the best. So apologies for that. Um, but yeah, I hope you're enjoying the conversation and we hope you'll come back for part two.